The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. For those of you who weren't there last week, and especially all of you Catalyst youth who are joining us, I, let me just do a, a little brief recap of Job's story so that you understand what I want to talk about today. Job was a man that was blessed in every way imaginable, health, wealth, status, a beautiful family, seven sons, three daughters, um, a wife, and then this Satan figure comes along and approaches God with a challenge. And he says, you know your servant Job that you're so proud of, that you boast about all the time. The only reason why he is faithful to you is because you are blessing him all the time. I mean, look at everything you do for him. Why wouldn't he worship you? Why wouldn't he follow you? And so he makes a request to God and says, test him. Test him. Take everything away from him. And I guarantee you, he will curse you to your face. And so God allows Job to go through this incredibly difficult journey of unimaginable loss and pain, losing his family, his children, losing his wealth, losing everything. And yet somehow after all of that, he still remains faithful. Job chapter 1, 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But eventually, as his health is even taken away, he reaches a level of suffering that is too much, even for this righteous man, and he reaches a breaking point. And that's where we get to chapter 3, where Job unleashes a curse. But not a curse against God as Satan predicted, but a curse against the day that he was born. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Job utters this curse against himself, really. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, not, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. These are startling words, aren't they? He basically says, I wish the day that I was born never happened so that I would never exist on this earth. In other words, I think what Job is saying is, when my life is reduced to this, then this life is not worth living. What's the point of any of this? And I, I said last week, Old Testament scholars have noted that these curses that Job utters are basically like undoing the words that God spoke in creation in Genesis 1. Because God said, let there be light. And Job says, let deep darkness blot out that light. God would say, let the stars and the heavenly bodies light up the night sky. And Job will say, let gloom and darkness reclaim the night. 
And then lastly, Job, a God would call forth existence as he made Adam and Eve, breathe the light of life into human beings. And Job looks at his life and says, my life has no value. And so I wish the day that I was born would be undone, that I would never have been alive. If you actually look at the creation account, I want to point out something specific that happens there. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. You see, not just in the Bible, but in many of these creation stories that you'll find at that time, uh, when the world began, what was there was just water. Water. Formless, empty, dark water, which was associated with chaos and disorder. That's why in Genesis, the state of the world when God begins his creation work is darkness filled with empty, undifferentiated water. And so on the first day, God creates light to break into that darkness. And then on the third day, look at what it says in verses 9 to 10. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So God creates land, dry land, to separate out the waters. And it's pretty obvious at this point, you could say, is I get why darkness represents chaos. I get why darkness represents basically something that is unformed. But why does water have that same symbol in creation? Well, as you see the creating of this land, you can, it makes sense, doesn't it? When God creates land and he creates plants and he creates animals, he basically creates a home where humans can live, a place where we can flourish. But when you look out at the sea, that's a really different place, isn't it, right? The sea represents the exact opposite of land. It is not a hospitable place. It is not where human beings can live. Imagine, in other words, being an ancient person standing at the beach and seeing these waves crashing against the seashore day after day after day. And what we can say is that the ocean is a mysterious and terrifying place. We don't know what's inside these deep waters. And it's not a place any of us wants to be without any help. And so those unrelenting, crashing waves on the shore are a powerful picture of chaos and disorder, basically attacking order, which is the land. And it's like this battle is happening on the seashore every day between chaos and disorder and order and creation that God has made. And what's interesting is it's not only the water itself, the seas themselves that represent this chaos, but it's also what lives in these seas. In Genesis 1:21, it says this, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind. Now, this word translated sea monsters could also actually be translated as dragons, or sea serpents. 
You say, whoa, there are dragons in the Bible? <laughs> yes, there are actually. There are actually a lot of dragons in the Bible. Um, and one of these sea monsters is going to get the name Leviathan. Leviathan. And it is a great sea serpent or dragon that lives in the oceans. And it represents chaos and disorder. And here's the thing is this sea creature called Leviathan in different names exists in many other religions around that time. And I kind of, I was debating whether to get into this. I know we're so short on time here. But I want to say this, especially because I know a lot of students are here. I think this is important for you to understand because when you go off, maybe even in high school, maybe even in college, you may take some religious studies courses and this is exactly the kind of stuff that your professors are going to tell you that's why Christianity is a bunch of garbage and is no different than any other religion. Because you see, all the religions say the same thing. They believed in sea monsters and they believed in all of these kind of weird symbols and things like that. And Christianity is no different than pagan religions. I don't think that is what's happening here. I think what's going on is this. It's yes, in almost every religion at the time, there were these Leviathan creatures that were being talked about. And so the Bible makes reference to them, but just because it is something that symbolizes what is known among the people around them. It would be similar to if I were to say to you, don't make God your Santa Claus. And if you said, oh, Dr. Steve believes in Santa Claus. No, I don't believe there's a man in a red furry costume going around riding reindeer that fly, bringing presents. But we all know what Santa Claus represents, don't we? And I can refer to the idea of Santa Claus and say, Jesus is not your Santa Claus, right? And I think the same thing is happening here with Leviathan. Leviathan was an understood monster at that time who represented chaos, a destructive force in nature. And the Bible will make reference to this creature to talk about how God reacts to this creature. And we're going to actually, toward the end of this Job series, do a deeper dive into Leviathan because Leviathan is a creature that God himself is going to bring up and says, do you know Leviathan? And God is going to tell Job about Leviathan. But for our purposes in this message, I just want to point out how Job references Leviathan because it's kind of disturbing. In Job chapter 8, verse uh, 3, verse 8 to 10, it says this, May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Now, who is Job talking about when he says, may those who curse days curse this one? He is talking basically about people who practice the dark arts, sorcerers, conjurers, magicians, and he says, I wish these people would rouse Leviathan on my behalf so that Leviathan could basically destroy the day that I was born. It's another way of, if you're familiar with uh, another movie, it's release the Kraken. Are you familiar with that phrase? Release the Kraken, right? It's saying rouse Leviathan. 
let loose the sea monster to do his destruction, to do his worst. You see, what's going on here? Before his suffering, Job believed in a world that was good because he believed that God was good. It was a world of order that made sense to him. But now in his suffering, he no longer sees a world that is good or even safe. And so in essence, he is saying, what is the point of existing if this is what existing is for? And so in his despair, he basically is saying, what's the point of any of it? Burn it all down. Let Leviathan loose. Let chaos reign. I think this is one of the most important journeys of faith in a world filled with chaos and disorder. Can we trust that God is still good? Can we hold on to the belief that God can be trusted and is our plans are for my good even when I'm going through a hard time? That is the journey of faith. There's a guy named Viktor Frankl. He, crazy enough, survived four different concentration camps under Nazi Germany during World War II. And it was through that unbelievably difficult experience that Frankl came to the conclusion that what drives human beings more than anything else is the search to find meaning through the difficulties they go through in their lives. Frankl writes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, despair is suffering without meaning. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. It's very powerful words, he says. If we can understand the purpose of our suffering, we can endure just about anything as long as we know that it's not purposeless, meaningless. And that's the promise of God, is that even when everything looks like it's going wrong in your life, there is a purpose, a deeper purpose. And I want to illustrate that as I close this message by two stories in the life of Jesus that I think show very powerfully the complexity of understanding why God allows suffering in our life. Remember how water symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes disorder in the Jewish understanding of the cosmos. Well, keep that in mind when you look at the story in the Gospels about what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 27, it says, Then he got, speaking of Jesus, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You see, a Jew would have understood this story so much more differently than we would because they would have thought of what water represented in their understanding of the world and said, here is a man to whom these terrifying seas mean nothing. In a horrible storm, the guy can sleep, sound like a baby. 
And then when he wakes up, he just rebukes it, and it's over in an instant. This is the God that everyone was hoping for, who can bring order to the chaos in my life. It is a God that demonstrates absolute control over every part of his creation. But then here's the problem, isn't it? If Jesus can calm every storm, then why doesn't he fix every problem in my life? Why does he let me suffer if he has this kind of power at his hand? Well, that's why we turn to another story. The story of Job begins with a wager of a Satan figure who says, this guy's faith isn't real. Let me test it and show you that he's a phony. And when we read a story like that, it's just it's like weird, right? It's like Old Testament stuff. It's not stuff we deal with now, right? Until you read the story in Luke, where you find something actually uncomfortably similar. In Luke chapter 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Basically, Jesus is saying the guy's up to his same tricks and making the same request to turn your lives upside down, to test your faith. And what does Jesus answer? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I don't like this at all. And I've talked about this before, haven't I? This sounds so weak to me. <laughs> you know, Satan is going to attack you like you have never experienced in your life. But I'll be praying for you. Like, that's the stuff we say to each other. Jesus should not be saying this. Jesus should be saying, I am the God Almighty, and I'm going to beat him down like a little field mouse, you know. I'm going to stomp on the guy so that none of this will happen to you. That's what I want to hear Jesus say. Jesus sounds so weak here. He says, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> okay? I'm going to sit in my little corner in heaven and get on my knees in my prayer closet, and I just pray that you'll be okay. There seems to be something vital about going through trials that God will not shelter us from, but says this is an important part of the journey of faith to be tested through trials, but this is what Job couldn't understand. I will be with you. What we know that Job didn't is the very son of God himself, Jesus Christ, is praying for us and strengthening us. His presence is with us no matter what trials that we go through in life.